Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the January 1620 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my first guest will be Marie Benedict, author of The Other Einstein. She has a new book out, Carnegie's Made, both books of which take up consequential unsung roles in historical fiction for these times. In the second segment, Julie Durrell of Bring Your Own Long Beach will take on our consumption assumptions, helping us pare down waste we're so good at generating. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Marie Benedict, lawyer and author. Her latest book, Carnegie's Made, along with The Other Einstein, are compelling historical fiction that put on our radar women whose phenomenal contributions have been relegated amazingly to the margins of European and American history. We get to talk about them today, right here, right now. Now, looking at this and Marie Benedict's earlier work under the name of Heather Terrell, including The Chrysalis, The Map Thief, and Brigitte of Kildare, it's a wonder she fits in her litigation career of 10 years at two, count them, major law firms. She completed her bachelor's degree in history and art history at Boston College and her law degree at Boston University School of Law. She comes to us today from Pittsburgh. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Marie Benedict, and as I hasten to say with all books that I present on the show, a spoiler-free interview. Oh, wow. That's a lot of pressure. First of all, thank you so much for having me today. I'm really delighted to chat with you, both about the books that I write and the kind of mission that spurs them on. And it is for our times. There are so many topical developments that say, mm. let's hope these are tailwinds for, for your reads and for all, all kinds of curiosities that are bursting instead of buttons at the top. Exactly. Curiosity bursting yeah, to pursue I mean, this. They really, um, you know, these books and my earlier works, but in particular these books and the ones that will follow, are born out of a long-standing uh, you could use the word obsession, but we'll call it passion for sort of excavating from history the stories about women, historical women, who have made significant contributions, but whose work has really, as you mentioned, been marginalized or behind the shadows of um, of another individual, usually male. So um, you know, the, and in, in doing so, it's amazing how timely those stories really are. You know, as I've concluded each of these, and as I've already finished the one that's going to come out next January, you know, these really are stories that are not just historical fiction. They are actually very modern tales as well. So they're really, um, I, I really hope, a really important part of the conversation that we're having today about women, women's roles, um, and women's power as well. Well, so those are all the topic sentences of each of the questions that we're going to cover together Ooh, today. Perfect. Okay, good. <laughs> congratulations on your new book. I'm going to roll it all the way back to uh, this. Congratulating you on your on Carnegie's made and for what must be the sustained success of, among other books, the other Einstein, which is yeah. both both of them. We're going to talk about one of your characters in uh, Carnegie's. The Claire Kelly uh, character quotes, yes. uh, the world of books is still the world from Elizabeth Browning Barrett. And so mm -hmm. you, you are the world, you're bringing the world. So always we must understand what inspired you. And you just alluded to it now. You take to take mm -hmm. up these stories that challenge what seems it's a bit of folklore about the pivotal male characters they were associated mm -hmm. with. Albert Einstein and Andrew Carnegie. Mileva mm -hmm. Mitza Marich, Einstein's first wife right. and his peer in physics, whose credits in the theory of relativity vanished, mm -hmm. vanished like uh, like ether in a in a laboratory. Yeah. And then yeah, Clara Kelly, whose credits, oh yes, and Clara Kelly, whose credits in theory. Her, let's let's go back to that uh, first. Mileva Mitza Maric. So wonderful. And on my way in, my uh, co my colleague here at the station, she remembers hearing a kind of murmuring in some mm -hmm. social media, maybe as a BuzzFeed. She wasn't exactly sure where, but it, it cropped up that there is this woman in Einstein's past. And mm -hmm. and my only 
my only thought was that there was a kind of crisis in Einstein's proofs after he published the theory of relativity. And in your book, we understand there was a woman in his life that the co-writing wasn't there, but you're implying in your book that she probably had, she, we have to say probably because it's historic fiction. She probably had the know-how that would have boosted his analysis through the tough math that he couldn't explain in a few forums of his. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you, so I'll back up a second. Um, You know, he was, uh, uh, Albert Einstein met Maleva Marish when they were physics students together at university. And complete peers. the, The climb that she had to make in order to actually make it to university is astonishing in and of its own right. I mean, she grew up in 18th century Serbia where it was actually illegal for girls to attend high school. And so she had to really push through this incredibly intolerant atmosphere for women and education to actually become one of his classmates. They had the same education, um, exactly the same in in university. They were um, scientific partners, both in and outside of the classroom. They became a couple, um, and maybe around their second year of university, and they proceeded to work on all sorts of projects together outside their regular classroom experience. So she was every bit um, the force that he was in this work and at this time. Um, in the 1980s, a whole bunch of letters was, between the two of them was discovered, ah. in which they, they talk about all this work that they did together. And it really prompted the physics community and the scientific community at large to kind of engage in a debate about what role she might have actually played. Because in 1905, which was considered his miracle year, when he, he published the four um, groundbreaking theories um, that really formed the foundation for modern-day physics, she was married to him. And she was not working. He was working a full-time job. They had a young child. Um, and they were used to working on scientific projects together. Oh, he le- it, you have him leaning on her. Yeah. Oh, not only leaning on her. I, I mean, I write fiction for a reason, because I can go places that writing nonfiction will not Correct. allow me to go. Right. But I do believe that she was more than just a proofreader and more than just um, somebody who filled in the blanks for him. I think for the kind of relationship that they had and the kind of knowledge base and education that she had, which matched his, I think I think they were very much partners at that time. Well, I'm, I, I, in yes. saying so, I don't want to detract from any of his contributions. I mean, he certainly was a great scientist. But, you know, when you, at, when you know who she was and what she was capable of, and you consider the question of um, what role she might have played, the question to me kind of becomes proof to me that she did not play a role in his work, right? Instead of instead of coming up with a piece of evidence that um, in which he proves that she actually did. But again, that's why I write fiction, because um, if I were writing nonfiction, this would all be supposition. I get to actually go through that process of what if she really did play a role and play that all out. But interesting, and I, I'm, I'm going on and on and on, Not at all. Sorry, but what, one thing that really did jump out at me as I was engaging in this research behind the book and looking at the physicists, debate about what role she did play was this sort of presupposition that women were not as capable. And that was one of the um, impetuses for me to write the book, because there was sort of this this predetermination that um, she probably didn't do much. And I kind of felt like if you knew her, um, you wouldn't feel that way. And I wanted to play out that what if that what-if question. Well, there's two aspects here. The nonfiction mm-hmm. part is she was a Slav, where that was a disparaging demographic for her. She was, a, yeah. she was a bit of a gimp, so, she, yep. so, mm-hmm. so this disability, disability. so that, uh, that, that was working against her. So that, and then I don't know if her Catholicism, her faith, was another sort of way so that's the nonfiction. I want to know if also in the nonfiction category, the Letters that were presented, that were revealed in the 1980s, did it include any Mm -hmm. correspondence with the peers at their physics university where their peers acknowledged her intellectual heft? Um, I wouldn't say that those letters reveal that. These are more, uh, they call them the love letters. They're a collection of letters um, that actually, I think it may be folklore, but they were found in a shoebox between Maleva and Albert 
during their university years and the early years of their marriage. Now, remember, most of the time they were together, so they didn't need to write to each other. So these letters um, reflect those, those shorter periods of time when they were actually apart. And these were the letters that Maleva kept. Um, so, I, you know, perhaps there were letters that existed between Albert and other people or Maleva and um, other peers, but we don't have those. Um, at least I don't have those. Certainly she was, you know, very much a part of their university experience, and she had longstanding relationships that continued on past their divorce with some of their university peers. So as we understand this, this compelling historic fiction that you're trying to put these messages out to Mm -hmm. general audience, or is it also your goal to pry open school publishing materials to set a number of records straight? Well, I love I love that idea. I mean, the, these books are this one Carnegie's made, and all the other ones that follow in this narrative connection or collection. Um, they uh, they're really meant for adult readers, but and they're not specifically tailored for schools. But I say that, and they are being used in schools. Oh, I would expect, um, yeah. And I am, and I have been invited to do several programs, both to schools and to libraries. Um, in which these are becoming part of what in history and English classes um, students are reading. And I love that because even if you just read one of these books and start to think about these time periods and these historical figures in a slightly different way and open up your eyes and, or perhaps put a slightly different lens through which to look at the past and realize that there were so many players and contributors about whom we know nothing, whether they're women or, like you said, Slavic people. You know, I do, I do these novels that I'm writing right now are focused on women's stories, but they're not just women. They're Slavic women and Irish Catholic women in the case of um, Carnegie's made. You know, they're part of other uh, marginalized groups as well. Um, so that plays into it. Uh, plays into it too. So I would love if these books opened up people's eyes, not just about the singular experience I'm writing about, the singular piece of history or, or the particular figure, but I would love it if they opened up people's eyes to our past in general. Because I personally believe unless we have a sense of um, the breadth of experience and contribution in our past, we can't really properly assess our, our current day. I really do. I think those messages linger. And, um, you know, I think we have to start changing the way that we look, uh, look at the world around us, including our past. So for those of you who just hopped into this interview, my guest is author Marie Benedict. She's written The Other Einstein and her latest book out in this series of narrative collections about contributions that, are, that vanished were missed. It's called Carnegie's Made, both remarkable reads, both published by Source Books Landmark. So the message that you're talking about, I want to bring up for a moment James Lowen. He's a sociologist that talks about the sociology of publishing in his book Lies My Teacher told me what your American history teacher got wrong. He talks about the intellectual honesty of what we're teaching schooled mm-hmm. students. And in there, I believe, among other places, we know, I mean, you talked about the miracle moment of the miracle time when the theory mm-hmm. of relativity pushed out in 1905. Well, w- with James Lowens makes the point with Helen Keller, or actually we, we can see it in our, our children's curriculum, Helen Keller never gets past the water pump miracle. Right. Her That's socialist, right. feminist, suffrage background is like lost on everybody. Nobody gets to, it's a very rare read that you see where she goes that far. Right. And it's not like, I mean, you and I, I think would agree that, and I mean, any reasonable person, this isn't a checklist to say, oh, we took care of the women here in our curriculum. Right. It's like a deprivation for everybody. It is. Well, for because for every time, and I love that example about Helen Keller, and gosh, I could see a whole book right there. All Next. you have to do is, is throw that out there, and I can see the whole book okay. taking shape. Yeah, I think we're missing, you know, one half the sky. We're missing an entire over 50% of the population when we look at history, and we, or we look at modern day or politics. We're, we're, we can't pretend that women were just doing nothing that they were sitting in the background and supporting their home. Or even if they were doing that, why marginalize that contribution and not say how important it was that, um, that all that, those tasks and that work was being done so that 
the other part of the population could do X, Y, and Z. I mean, we're just so loath to even spend time and effort on including women's history, her story, in the narrative. And that, that really is my goal, is to, you know, to start painting these women back into the picture, back into the portrait of the past, and then to open up people's eyes to the whole encompassing past and our modern day. You know, it's funny. I do a lot of speeches, and I'm fortunate to be invited to do a lot of talks. And so often I have women come up to me after I give a talk, say, take, for example, the other Einstein. Right. Coming up and talking to me about their own experiences as a woman in STEM or just as a woman in, in in the workplace or in the home, and talking about their stories and seeing themselves and their own situations in Maleva's story. Right. And there's something about telling stories about the past and that remove of time that allows people to extrapolate and see themselves in a more comfortable way. It's really interesting. Um, you wouldn't think that writing about something that's a little farther away from them would make people see things closer to home, but they do. And I can't tell you how many women who've come up and shared their stories with me and having had a book that really isn't about them or their time period, the other Einstein, make them rethink things that are going on in their own lives. I, I couldn't imagine that th- the fact that it was in that field or that so long ago, it, it, it doesn't take away from the, the truth of a dismissed contribution. Oh, absolutely. And it goes on today all the time. I can't tell you how many women who are in STEM fields come up and talk to me after I give a speech. It's mind-boggling how many people have similar stories. You know, whether or not it's specifically about being uh, having their contribution erased or whether it's that that they're not given the chance to sit at the table at all. You know, these are both sort of pieces that come out of Maleva's story that that women can relate to. Or having their home contributions not um, given any any sort of credence is another piece of it. So I want, yes, I'm glad that you're telling us about this kind of reception that you're getting. So I'm thinking we're we're facing times up in mm-hmm. it's not just in the entertainment industry and we're talking about times up is in academia it's in right. it's in labor it's in journalism it's everywhere do you sense that it's giving you a little kind of some tailwinds here in making your case that this stuff so much is dismissed oh i hope so i mean the, the same voices that i hear frustrated and angry and wanting to take action in the Time's Up movement. Uh, those are the same, women's who come up and, same women who come up and talk to me after my speeches. So there is a chord that is being struck by the developments that are coming forth in the news, by the kind of issues that I talk about in my books, that really speaks to people and is something that really needs to be addressed. And now, so, you know, whether people are hearing that and responding to those that chord, whether it's in the news or in fiction, I'm just happy that that they're responding and that they, that the pressure is mounting to make change because it really needs to happen. Well, in your historic fiction, you are getting mm-hmm. a good many other things accomplished as well. And I, I have, was privileged to hear uh, a journalist who's on Marketplace Radio. He covers the uh, the Chinese beat for Marketplace. Scott Tong was here last Friday, and oh, he and he's come out with a, a book, his first bit of his his is a bit of historic fiction, and he has a refrain in his uh, I guess between his wife and himself about this genre gets it sort of mixes in broccoli and spinach facts into a good story. The reader <laughs> is enriched, enlightened, and you bring up the Thirteenth Amendment and the uh, the enrollment. Act, you know, I, that's mm-hmm. I think really constructive. Well, I hope so. I mean, I think you know, I love history, all facets of it. You know, I love to dig in and get into the minutia that maybe some other people wouldn't find as scintillating as I do. But those to understand how those what seem to be dry aspects, maybe the broccoli and the spinach of history, to see how they actually play out in someone's everyday actual existence, that's what historical fiction lets you do. It brings to life and enlivens something that if you read in a textbook would seem very dry and sort of removed from reality for you. And it it allows you to put it in context and really really bring bring it to life. So I agree. I think, you know, I love it when I read a book and I'm learning something 
about which I, I knew very little. And I hope that, that people come away from my books learning about an area that perhaps they didn't know, a historical area, or, you know, even just a, a subject matter, a topic that they didn't know a lot about before. So what the main characters, as we, we're, we're alluding to it a little bit, that mm-hmm. Mitza and Clara mm-hmm. Kelly, they're mm-hmm. both, there's a thread coming through about their faith. And so maybe you can mention a little bit about, so what Mitza's faith may have had to do and her experience of losing her first child, you, it's not clear mm-hmm. in the discussion, was it a uh, was it a scarlet fever, was it, or was she adopted, was she, you know, where she went, but how the relationship with her daughter she lost and the mm-hmm. theory of relativity had some cosmic overlap there. Mm-hmm. That's a big lift. Well, uh, for for me, well, to, we'll back up a second. Yes. I mean, we, we do know in those letters I referred to earlier, the right. letters that were discovered between Maleva and Albert in the 1980s, those letters are the first reference that anyone in history knew about this, the birth of Lazurl, which was their illegitimate daughter. They had her, uh, Maleva got pregnant before they married, before she even finished her exams, and, um, and she was born before the couple married. Um, she becomes very ill at some point with scarlet fever. We know these from the documents. And she becomes, uh, and Maleva races home to be by her side. We do not know what happened to the child after that. There's really no, there's no reference to her. And in fact, there's an entire journalistic book dedicated to the topic. Somebody went out to try and figure out what happened to this child. I believe, and this ties into how the birth and death of Lazaro really, in my mind, extrapolates into the, the creation of the theory of relativity. Yes. Because it's all around this time period that that theory is being formed and being written about by Maleva and or Albert. You know, Maleva... But what's most important in her world, aside from being a scientist, is being a parent, is being a mother. Right. And when she loses Lazurl, when Lazurl dies, um, she has a tremendous amount of guilt associated with that. She had given Lazurl up temporarily to marry Albert. She wasn't by her child's side when she became really deathly ill. Um, she does race back, but, you know, the damage has really been done by that point. And um, at the same time, they're, they're toying with this notion of relativity. You know, they're, pl- they're playing around with how it all works. And to me, I'm a parent myself, but yes. I think any person can relate. When you have tremendous guilt and, and possibly tremendous guilt surrounding the loss of a loved one, in particular your own child. And conflicted relationships, loyalties and, and all. Exactly. What, to, to me, it seemed very logical that a person at that time would be thinking about how they could have made, done things differently, if only. There's a lot of regret and a lot of if onlys that go on in a person's mind at that time, including what if only I could turn back time, right? So when you're sitting there having these thoughts at that time, and you're, and you're also very enmeshed and embroiled in this notion of relativity, to me the two, and again, this is, uh, this is fabrication, because who knows how the theory was actually formed, but to me those two things really did seem to link up at that time. So for me, I could envision that moment, and so I, I created that moment for Maleva. So I'm curious, where mm-hmm. Albert Einstein's affect what, where did you get that? I mean, I, I have my own theories about what, where he draws from that, but what in the writings and other research you've done helps you develop this very, it's like an Asperger's affect that he has in the uh, intimate familial relationships? Mm. A lot of that, well, of course, there's tons of biographies on him, but I really do try when I can to stick with original source material. Correct. Because I'm so wary of looking at these times through somebody else's lens. Right. You know, that's what I'm trying to do is change the lens. So I don't want to borrow okay. anybody else's. Um, so for me, what was most helpful in creating both Maleva's voice and Albert's and the way the dynamic that the two shared were the letters. Not just the letters that I described earlier between Maleva and Albert, you know, during the early years of their relationship, but also the letters that Maleva wrote and received from her very best friend, who's referred to in the book quite a bit, Helene yes. Koffler. 
Uh, Helene was a real person. Um, she was a fellow classmate of um, Maleva's and really became her lifelong closest friend. Yes. And there is a wonderful collection of letters which Helene's grandson has collected and published, along with a series of recollections, um, vignettes and anecdotes that his grandmother shared with him. And in these letters, you can see Maleva really confessing everything, much like, you know, a teenage girl or a right. young woman today might well, she was desperate. do a confession. Yeah, confessional sort of letter, email, text, whatever, to a friend. So all that, her guard is down. And and you see her talking both about when things are wonderful with Albert, you know, the the whole scene of them going off to Lake Como together. That really comes from a letter to Helene Koffler. But you also see when things start to degenerate. And you start to see, she starts to confess and talk about how horrible things have become. And it's really in that rise and fall and then in some of the way that Albert and Maleva talked to one another in the letters that I kind of derived his um, manner. So, Marie Benedict, can you just kind of think out loud with me? Mm-hmm. Where do you think Albert Einstein, in a historic fiction kind of explanation way, where do you think he saw his opportunity to run with this uh, ownership of this physics uh, intelligence? Well, I don't think intellectual um, property. Albert, I mean. if if in fact Albert had not, if in fact Maleva had contributed to those four theories, and if in fact Albert had been involved in the decision to not give her credit for those things, I don't imagine he would have thought that he was doing anything wrong. And I do describe this in the book. He right. had okay. a pun that he liked to use. He described them Ugh. as Einstein which, of course, is a play in his last name, and it means one stone. Right. He liked to describe the two of them as one person. This is, of course, when he wanted something from her. So, you know, I think he would have really thought, well, what does it matter if I give her credit or not? Because we're a married couple, and we're really one person together. And I really do think he thought about it that way. I don't really think he would have ever thought that he was doing something wrong. And in his defense, I don't think anyone at the time would have either. Well, I, I really want I would like to write a kind of a uh, posit a kind of a a lefty pamphlet that's that <laughs> maybe that his mother cultivated him as the center of the universe and that oh, totally. what I mean everything was coming to him at a sort of an entitlement that uh, mm-hmm. that it would maybe have been a, a seed in the ver- from the very beginning to uh, for him to to size up opportunities as they came to him and I mean you I think you're you're winking at that possibility that he's mm-hmm. he's hitting on her in the physics university classroom right I mean is that any surprise so is it any I mean so that's what I mean. always always ask me and this ties into your question what do you think his diagnosis would have been right people always say oh, was he autistic did he have Asperger's I think he was a narcissist like a, a like a psychologically classified narcissist not that in that offhand way oh he's such a narcissist I, it's exactly what you said like he was raised to believe that the world revolved around him exclusively and I do believe that some of these great thinkers, the people who really buck up against um, traditional norms to come up with revolutionary ideas and really propel them forth, they also have to believe that what they're doing is not only the most important thing in the world, but the right thing in order to have that success in promulgating their theories. So I think that notion that he was the most important thing, doing the most important work in the world, was a blessing and a curse. I think it was very, cha- that, that worldview, that perspective, made it possible yes. for him to really put forth these critical theories into the world, really, which have changed our world. So in that way, it was a blessing. But I think it was a curse in personal relationships, because I don't think he was ever able to engage in a truly intimate uh, relationship with somebody, emotionally intimate relationship, because it was only ever about Albert. Yeah. Well, all that's your my, that's my pop psychology. Well, too, well, I, well, pop psychology. I mean, it fits. I mean, that we're you know mm-hmm. c- we're contemplating the possibilities in a historic fiction fashion, mm-hmm. and but the mind is racing to all these possibilities. Well, mm-hmm. uh, Clara Kelly in Mrs. Carnegie's Maid, mm-hmm. she. I love how you sort of keep winking at 
both the reader and at the characters that she's interacting with. It's in her first-person narrative. And I, mm-hmm. that's, I, this is not Writers on Writing that my colleagues do on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. So I'm trying to steer this to the sort of the nonfiction uh-huh. talk. They talk about the, the business of writing and that kind of thing. So I'm steering sure. clear of that they do so well Wednesdays at 9. But so I just wanted to, t- though, say, though, that it's sort of like, boom, here we are. We're, we're looking at her pivotal contributions in institution building that to this day we're all benefiting mm-hmm. from it's phenomenal oh thank you i mean i what to me her story claire kelly's story is really the story of thousands if not millions of female immigrants and just women in general but in particular here female immigrants who have made an enormous contribution to the building of our society from an economic, philanthropic, cultural aspect whose stories have never been told. And, you know, when we think about our immigrant past, of which is our own history because we are a country of immigrants for the most part, when we think about our past, we, if we're going to talk about any historical figures specifically at all that were immigrants, we're going to talk about the men. We're going to talk about Andrew Carnegie, Rockefeller, the traditional rags-to-riches um, stories, the people who've made those sorts of contributions. Um, Hamilton is another one. But very infrequently do we ever talk about the women who came to the shores of this country on their own, famished, and not only provided for themselves, but provided for their families back in their country of origin, and, um, and who have left a lasting legacy on this country. We never talk about them. So to me, the, story, the opportunity to tell the story of Clara Kelly is really the story, the opportunity to tell the story of all those voiceless, faceless, silent figures that have really built our country. Well, I want to give you a chance as we close to talk about, as you, you alluded to, uh, this is going to be a much, much larger project. Mm-hmm. Maybe yep. you could just give us a little, just the, between you and me, uh, the and next book. you're listening. Um, about what's next? next well, it's what's funny coming you up. should ask what's next, because you actually reference it in some of the questions that in the email that you sent me. So I'm going to tell you what's next, and you can tell me who you think it is. Oh, it's, it's the story of a young, don't say it, a young Jewish woman who grows up in Austria in the 1930s, whose um, background is, is little known, who ends up marrying one of the richest men in Austria. Ultimately, he becomes an arms dealer to first Mussolini and then Hitler. Um, at the dinner table where he hosts most of their his business, conducts most of his business meetings, she learns not only a great deal about military strategy and weapons development, but she also learns what's going to happen to the Jewish people. She escapes from him. She gets swept up in a wave of Jewish um, performers, artists, directors, writers, who get swept up into Hollywood. Um, because the Nuremberg Laws don't permit them to perform or work in the profession anymore. She ends up becoming a well-known actress, but she uh, has tremendous survivor's guilt from having getting herself out, but nobody else. And she utilizes the secret knowledge that she gained to create a communication system that uh, would make torpedo weaponry incredibly effective. She patents it. She offers it to the U.S. Navy, and they decline it because she's a woman. But her technology and communication system is so effective, they later adopt it and use it in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we use it every single today, every single day today in our in our cell phones. We wouldn't have it without her. Wireless communication so, would, wouldn't wireless be what it is without yeah. Hedy Lamar. And we're and so mm-hmm. I hope you're going to include in there a bit about how Lewis Mayer played her with uh, all of these the these yep. deprived uh, Jewish actresses. He thought he could get them yep. on the cheap, and she renegotiated uh, everything. So. You know what's incredible, Claudia, is, I, you know, this book is finished, of course, because it comes out in less than a year, and the books are always done long before. So the, it was done long before the documentary about her came out. Well, there's out several. And, there's more um, than one documentary. I haven't seen because it isn't available for the public yet. It's just been in film festivals. But, and, you know, awareness about her has been kind of out there in the periphery. But um, what's amazing is I wrote a lot, you know, a lot of the sections of the book over the summer. Right. And I was editing them this fall um, as I gave them to my, uh, my editor. And there are two or three scenes in there that are straight out of a Harvey Weinstein scenario. Straight. It's unbelievable it's... how uncanny that, that 
you know, Louis Mayer's situation in the Harvey Weinstein, and, and which was just endemic in Hollywood at that time. But it just goes to show you these issues that seem historic are just, they're still so timely. And they really are part of our ongoing conversation that we need to be having about women in our society. Well, Marie Benedict, this has been such a pleasure. I'm, I what can't wait pleasure. for you to come to Southern California on your book tour. I guess you'll, you'll bring Hedy Lamar here if we haven't had the pleasure of the uh, being scheduled on the the Carnegie's Made uh, book tour. My you guest, never know, uh, but thank you so much. I would love to have the opportunity. Okay, well, I'm waiting for you from from Caltech to uh, Culver City to uh, to Santa Monica. The, you've got so many venues waiting to have you. My guest, oh, thank you, thank you. My guest was Marie Benedict. She's the author of. Of the other Einstein and her latest book, Carnegie's Made, both published by Source Books Landmark and available at your independent book dealer. Thank you for your time. It's been wonderful, Mary Benedict. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. We'll be right back, Bye-bye. folks, with, we're going to be right back with Julie Durrell, who's going to talk about how we're going to reduce our consumption in the, the most elegant of ways, things you have already thought about and not. UNESCO's Rhapsody Number 1. Thank you for joining us here on Ask a Leader. My next guest is Julie Durrell, and I want to open first with years ago, I had the pleasure of having Sue Carpenter on. She was then known as the Garbage Maven with the Los Angeles Time. I've had Earth System scientists and chemists talking about the persistence of plastic like diamonds are forever taking up that continued charge in a very specific way is my next guest julie durrell of bring your own long beach byo long beach which she started last year a product of portland oregon she developed at a young age and and had an appreciation respect for the environment her background is in design with a focus on hotel renovations and new construction She graduated from the Art Institute of Portland with a bachelor's degree in interior design. She later completed her LEAD accreditation, the Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, while working on commercial design. She moved to the Los Angeles area in 2003, making Long Beach her home. Among her clients or the beneficiaries of her consumption ethos are her two children. Julie Durrell comes to us today from Long Beach, California. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Julie Durrell. Hi, Claudia. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to have you on. It's always a this topic I love to keep bringing up, among others. Obvious question. We understand all the motivation to do this. What particularly inspired you to launch BYO Long Beach? And I can think of a lot of different organizations that you're still affiliated with. That, but let's. what got this going? Well, I felt like there was a missing component to trying to live with less waste. I was able to find unpackaged foods at my local farmer's market or the grocery store, but I couldn't find things like cleaning products and soaps or other things just with less packaging. Everything is wrapped in plastic, and I just I couldn't find those things. And um, there's a quote by one of my favorite um, childhood authors, Beverly Clearly. Oh. Um, if you don't see the book you want on the shelf, write it. And I couldn't find the books or the products I was looking for, so I sourced them myself. And you're doing it. So we we met at a Long Beach Farmers Markets where you got on my radar, and what mm-hmm. with a really just a, such a an elegant kind of enterprise. Let's let's talk about the choices we make. You talked a little bit about what you know in the in the conventional commercial arena. Let's maybe you can list back and forth some of the things that we are doing that we could be doing otherwise, like the wrappings you mentioned, that the farmer's market, there's zero wrapping, although uh, they do have a plastic bag exemption, but we can work around that, bring in our own bags in there. Right. Yeah. Bringing a cloth produce bag is a great idea. You can use that at the farmer's market or even at your local grocery store. Um, just trying to avoid things that are already wrapped. Try to find it without wrapping. And another um, another way to do that is to buy things in bulk. And I don't mean you know shopping at you know a big store with everything in packaging. I mean like loose, um, like buying your nuts and your to the bins. beans. 
Yeah, in the bins. And um, you can bring a container to fill it um, yourself. There are some stores that will automatically take off the weight of the container for you. So if you bring a jar, just take it to the cash register first, have them weigh it beforehand, and then go fill it up with your whatever. And then when you check out, they will deduct the weight of the jar for you. Or if it's easier for you to just bring a cloth produce bag, you can do that too. So then you mentioned in your the BYOLongBeach.com website, there, there's lots, or, and on your Facebook and your Twitter account, everybody can find you with all, all kinds of ways, uh, missions, takeaways mm-hmm. to, uh, for paring down our consumption. I'm still keeping track. I look everywhere when uh, what we can do about what we're drinking to pare down the waste. I'm still watching one cup, one plastic lid, yeah. and one straw. And I drug to a, a lovely event on Saturday. There were, I, I found one cup. I forgot to bring it out of my car. But, and folks, uh-huh. I do do that. I do bring my containers with me. But so I, you know, I tried to avoid and made a big deal out of it, actually. So I, I'm going to use this one cup. I'm not going to keep going through all these little plastic water bottles with their little caps and all that kind of thing. People were, because right, it was yeah. Indian food. They were going through a lot of those water bottles. <laughs> So, right. Yeah. So, and you have like yeah, razors. We, we we could waste. We could save so much on plastic with something right. as simple as just a re, reusable razor. Edge. But it's better on guys' faces. I don't know if we can uh, women's uh, more curved areas for. Uh, I'm talking armpits, well, folks. You you know I think it's just a, a marketing campaign. Um, the yeah. razor that I have is the the old-fashioned safety razor. My husband and I use, we each have our own, but we use the same exact style. So, ah, you know, it doesn't, okay. it doesn't matter. It's just a big marketing campaign with those pink razors. So, you know, and, and the, speaking of the bathroom, there's your toothbrushes, your dental floss. All of that comes in plastic packaging and is plastic. So, you know, the first toothbrush you used from the time you were a child still exists somewhere in the world because it can't break down. So, you know, switching over to bamboo toothbrushes and getting dental floss in little uh, glass refillable containers and buying shampoo in bulk rather than using a plastic bottle and then throwing it away and then getting another one. You know, it's just this endless cycle. Endless, endless. Yeah. And let's just remind everybody that this whole recycling idea is its mm-hmm. own myth. There's not what percentage uh, actually. We, we've talked about this with other shows with Earth System Science. What's it like? We're down to like twenty some percent, seventeen percent actually gets recycled. Yeah, the there's plastic? just um, there are a lot of things that can't be recycled and and they get thrown in the bin still. And there's so there's too much contamination of non-recyclables mixed with the recyclables, and so it they just toss it out. It's just too much to sort through it sometimes. And, um, or it's just not enough of something to make it worth their time to recycle it. And some cities um, burn their trash. I know that Long Beach does. So if you buy things without the packaging, then you avoid the whole, you avoid recycling altogether. So let's listen, let listeners know where they can find your platforms where you're doing business, Julie. Yeah, so I'm actually currently sitting right now at one of my little uh, pop-up shop locations, which is at Algalita. It's in um, the marina in Long Beach, and they are a nonprofit. The founder, which was uh, Captain Charles Moore, he's the one that discovered the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And so Algalita works to um, educate the public about about you know plastic pollution and what we can do to, to fix it. And so they were so kind, and they, they offered to um, host my refill station at their shop. So I've got shampoo and conditioner and soaps and things like laundry detergent and dishwasher soap and hand dishwasher soap, um, all available without packaging. You can bring your own container, or I have a few containers here, too, that you can purchase. So these are containers. They're just sort of one slice of life. I'm just trying to find out where, let's say you you want to really maximally boost your your domain, your business there. What what even bigger things would you love in the future to, to add to this enterprise so we feel like we're really getting ahead of racking up so much waste, Julie? Yeah. I, you know, for me personally, I have uh, a gluten intolerance, and so I can't find things like gluten free flour in bulk. Um, there's a lot of places where you can find, you know, whole wheat flour and, 
and um, other, you know, flours in bulk, but you can't find gluten-free products. And so I'd love to be able to add that component to my business and, you know, just have a place where people can come and just refill the containers that they've already got and just altogether quit, you know, disposables, single-use plastics and um, all the packaging that you don't need. So philosophically, how, or let's say commercially, how do you see, have you been considering making paring down consumption even more glamorous? Well, you know, minimalism is really, you know, it's hit its stride right now. People are living in tiny houses, small apartment living, you know, it's, it's, it is the trend, and it's it's a good thing because you know we're we've constantly been sold this idea that more is more, but it's not. And and the more things you have, the more things you have to take care of. So um, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a minimalist, but I hope to get there someday. Um, I've been paring down things in my life, like you know the whole packaged foods thing. So I'm I'm just avoiding things that are actually usually not healthy for me anyway and buying things that are fresh and um, real foods. And so that's, that's cut down a lot of things that are in my kitchen cabinets. And then, you know, I avoid going to the, the mall and, and buying things that I don't need. And I, for all of 2017, I didn't buy myself any new clothes. And um, I actually got rid of half of my clothes at the beginning of the year and found that I, I wore all my favorite things. And so that's all I needed. Um, so yeah, that's it's really been uh, a, a great journey to to see what you don't need in your life and find what you really love and take care of those things. And Julie, you talked about that in some of your, the, your postings that it's counterintuitive, but getting rid of things does actually pare down one's consumption. Can you just give us that sort of that what that revelation sort of actually how that works? Well, when you when you have the stuff out of the way that you're not using, you get down to the bare essentials of what you need and what you love, you know, with, like with clothing, you know, if you've got a whole drawer full packed of clothes, you can't see your favorite shirt that's at the back. And so when you're just down to what you want, what you love, then, you know, that's, there's just less to take care of, less clothes to wash, and you're just, you're just living with what you need. Well, I'm also thinking sort of psychologically when you're, you take an accounting of, well, I don't need this, 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 this is all going on. And you're thinking, well, wait a mm-hmm. minute. So that might sort of short circuit what you think in, when you're back in the commercial setting. Well, I don't need that on the rack. So I just got rid of something that looks just like that or, or that'll last, right. that lasted even longer than what I think this thing on the rack is going to last. So it's sort of, it's like a, a focusing on, you know, what's not just what you love, but, but focusing on, I don't want to go through this toss-out exercise in another, you know, 18 months or something like that or less. Right, yeah. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Julie Durrell. I'm going to call her a zero-waste entrepreneur. She's founded Bring Your Own Long Beach, and we're talking about this very enterprise and helping everybody rethink a little bit more the elegance of consuming less. So are there ways we can follow you? You want to tell us where BYO Long Beach is? Yeah, um, it started with my Instagram, and so that's where that's where I'm probably the most present online. Is uh, Bring okay. Your Own Long Beach, uh, all spelled out, and um, and I just recently added a website, and it's byolongbeach.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook, Bring Your Own Long Beach. Um, and I have pop-up events. Once a month, I'm at the farmer's market in the marina in Long Beach. Which um, month? Which the, weeks of the month? Any particular week? Yes, uh, just the first Sunday of the month. Okay. So the next one would be on February 4th. Okay. And, and then after that, I've got at the Urban Hive Market, which is in downtown Long Beach at the Pike. It's on February 24th from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. It's over by the big Ferris wheel. Wow. Like go from the craft beer lounge over to you and get or in, oh yeah and around that <laughs> that stretch there. Oh no, I mean this is all. It can be martinis, folks. I'm not gonna or seltzer. I don't care. So Long Beach is great. There's there's so many cool yeah. uh, small businesses that are so supportive of what I'm doing. And when you go into their shops and ask for something without packaging, they're usually more than happy to help you. 
So besides those bookings, your regular market bookings, are there any mm-hmm. other pop-ups, any events that we ought to know about, Julie Durrell? I'm working on adding some more farmer's markets um, around the Los Angeles area. And yeah, I, I don't have anything booked yet, but I'm working on it. Well, Trish Harrison is the farmer's market manager for the certified markets for Orange County. So now, now you know to look her up, but uh, it may be hard to get a hold of her because she's got so many vendors. And I, it's, But I do get, I hear back from her. So just keep her in mind so that we get to, because uh, Orange County, there's, it has so much wealth here. And where there's wealth, there's waste, right? Ha ha. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it trickles. It's throughout the whole economy. You know, it, everyone has trash in their life. And it's, it's just about rethinking, rethinking what you can do without and what you can find that's reusable. Well, Julie, I don't know if you have any more announcements you want to give to us before we close the interview today. No, I, I just wanted to um, get people to think about, you know, what they can do to replace objects that are disposable with reusables. And you don't necessarily have to go out and buy the new cool thing, but use what you have and find things that are used or borrow from a friend. And yeah, just try to use less. Well, Julie Durrell, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Thanks for your time today. Thanks so much, Claudia. I really, really appreciate it. This is my guest was Julie Durrell, a zero waste entrepreneur. She's founded Bring Your Own Long Beach. Watch in her Facebook, her Instagram and Twitter accounts for where she's going to pop up next. In addition to her regularly scheduled first Sundays in Long Beach at the Marina and in the February 24th for the downtown Los Angeles location. Thank you again, Julie. Thank you so much. Well, that's a, a wrap of sorts. I've got a lot of announcements for everybody. So here, first, Waste Water, Wildfires, and Global Warming, presented by Imagine Action OC at Coastal Community Park Clubhouse tonight at, uh, I believe it's 7, at 6700 Ridge Park Road in Newport Beach. And then today, Kenyan Democrats are hosting a candidate forum for the 45th. That's where this Radio station is housed. It's at 7 to 9 p.m. tonight at the Norman P. Murray Community and Senior Center in Mission Viejo. That's 24932 Veterans Way. I've checked with Congresswoman Walter's office for any public forum updates. I've not heard back from them. Not yet. So, uh, Brews and Brains, you heard about that in the interview last week. They're meeting at the Fireside Tavern tonight, too, of all these other events. 3131 Bristol Street in Costa Mesa. And don't forget, already underway and continuing all through Friday is UCI's Refugee Awareness Week. You can find it on UCI's Events Today website. Exhibitions, talks of all kinds and opportunities while the winter quarter is still young. That's my wrap, folks. Next week, my guest will be local banking executive Tyrone DeWale on how the tax overhaul bill affects lending practices and investments right here in 2018. Then Charlie Black is going to return with updates from the Brady campaign for the prevention of gun violence. Talk with you next week. Thank you everyone for listening.